um, eight biographies of Billy Graham, two definitive ones twice. By far, to my mind, the best is the one I'm going to show you. It's got a spelling mistake on the front cover, so it's reduced in price. It's called A Prophet with Honor. And they haven't got the U in honor, honestly. The Americans, they wreck our language and they spell it wrongly when they wreck it. But um, um, by William Martin, it was an authorized biography. It came out before Just As I Am, which was the so-called autobiography of Billy Graham. And I will refer to that later on. If you're a reader, you'll, you'll enjoy this book. Um, it's, it's definitive. It even tells you how he prepared sermons, how he has his quiet times. It, it's, I, I found this fascinating and I've read this, as I say, a couple of times. I love this book and I recommend it. There's only one at the moment, but they've said, um, if you wanted one and have run out, uh, they'll send it to you without charge. Let's pray and then we'll look together at this, um, this great man of God, Billy Graham. Father, we're coming now to Look at one individual, not who lived 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, but was with us just a year ago, and now is with you in glory. And yet there are things that we're going to examine that, yeah, we don't like to uh, in any way have a critical spirit, and I pray that it wouldn't come across like that, but that we would learn and benefit. Um, thank you for... Uh, all that he was able to accomplish in your name. Thank you that there are people here this afternoon who were converted through his ministry. And yet, Lord, we, 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 we want to be faithful and we want to, as it were, guard ourselves and uh, protect ourselves from some of the temptations that come our way and particularly uh, sort of 21st century temptations to try to make ourselves more effective by doing things that perhaps are not of yourself. Look, Lord, we, we look into this now and we just pray for your help and your enabling. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a little bit nervous about this because this isn't me. I'm a gospel preacher and when I'm speaking I love to try and stir up people uh, to take the word of God seriously, the gospel seriously, etc. So this is a little bit different from what I normally do. And secondly, those of you who know how I preach, normally I've got a few... Uh, a few notes. Sometimes I've even got just four lines on my hand and I just, I just preach from that. And, and yet here I've got quite a lot of information. I want to try and get this as accurate as I can and I don't want in any way to misrepresent things. So if I'm reading a little bit more than I normally would, please forgive me. As I said, I, I've read eight different biographies of, of uh, Billy Graham, uh, which for me, I love biography, but I've read more of Billy Graham's biography than any other person. I first heard him, uh, in fact, a number of times in that one year, in 1966, when he was being relayed from Earl's Court to um, the Queen's Hall in Leeds. Uh, as it happens, that was the year my wife, Dot, who's here somewhere, was converted when she went to Earl's Court and heard Billy Graham. She was too shy to go forward, but she went to the person who brought her from the West Country. Uh, she went there the next day, and he was to lead her to Christ. I used to regularly every week if possible, listen to the Hour of Decision, which was his radio program on Radio Monte Carlo every Sunday evening. And I, I used to get the, the Decision magazine, and I enjoyed it. I loved the Decision magazine, which was his magazine, of course. In 1984, I took my family to Sunderland to go and hear Billy Graham. That included Jonathan, who was just a tiny baby. But I wanted him, if he grew to be much older, you know, to be able to say to his grandchildren, I heard Billy Graham. He was fast asleep in his mother's arms and I wanted him to have heard Billy Graham. And I took my in-laws to, to Bristol. I took my brother to hear um, 
Billy Graham in Sheffield, my brother's not a Christian, but I said, look, Dad's singing in the choir. I didn't say there were 2,000 others. You've got to come in here and support Dad singing in the choir, etc. In 1983, I left school teaching um, a week or so early before the end of term, took an unpaid leave for a week, and I flew off to Amsterdam to the first conference which he had for itinerant evangelists in Amsterdam. I'd love to tell you all about that because a lot of things I learned there which I'd love to share, but I, I no time there. My favourite living author is Warren Wiersbe. I think anything written by him is worth reading, apart from Peter Maiden, sorry. Um, yes. And um, uh, uh, Warren Wiersbe was converted through listening to Billy Graham when Warren was just 15 years of age. What I'm going to do is not a biography, it's really an appraisal. And um, uh, really from his biography, I want to just quickly give a summary of his life and then we'll try and analyse some of the things. Um, his father was a dairy farmer. Um, he was the son brought up on this farm in North Carolina, born in 1918, and so he would have been 100 if he'd lived to November the 18th last year. Um, he was six foot three, tall sort of guy, brought up in a Christian, a God-fearing home. Um, he was converted around about the age of 17 when he heard um, an unknown evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham, unknown to most of us anyway, he heard him preach and he was converted. After his conversion to Christ, somebody said God became his only passion. Eventually he was to work after doing some door-to-door uh, -door selling, which he's quite famous for, of course. He was to work as an evangelist with Youth for Christ. He became young, uh, America's youngest college president and, uh, because he became president of Northwestern Schools in Minneapolis. He was to marry Ruth, they were to have five children, but the break, if I can call it that, the moment when um, he was catapulted to fame was when Randolph Hearst, the owner of a newspaper conglomerate, who previously instructed his journalists to, quote, puff youth for Christ, boost up youth for Christ, told them to Puff Graham, that was the telegram that was sent to the journalists in Los Angeles uh, in 1949 uh, to the Christ for Greater Los Angeles Crusade. And there were some quite well-known people who were converted there, so it made headline news. In 1954, he preached to 185,000 people at Wembley Stadium. And uh, they went there, they braced themselves against driving rain. Uh, it was a larger crowd than had gone there in 1948 for the Olympics. In 1957, 100,000 people jammed the Yankee Stadium for the closing night of the New York Crusade, where over a period of 12 weeks, 2 million people had come to hear him in Madison Square Gardens. One of the tracks I've got on the, the bookstore there is the story of Ethel Waters, uh, his eyes on the sparrow, who, who came back to faith through that uh, crusade. In Seoul, in South Korea, <coughs> in 1973, over 1 million people heard him at the final event. That's just at one event a million people heard him, which they say is the largest recorded religious gathering in history. In 1995, his global missions in Puerto Rico were received by satellite in 185 countries and in 117 languages. 
And wherever he went, he always broke record attendances. They say that a hundred million people heard him live. But I reckon I was 12 of those, because I think I heard him live 12 times. So, <laughs> but anyway, you've got the idea. Hundreds of thousands of people came forward when he asked people to get up out of your seats and come to the front to receive Christ. Um, Billy Graham had a meal with Warren Wearsby and said to him that uh, the Billy Graham organization reckoned that just 2% of those who went forward, so that's one in 50, just 2% went on with the Lord. And you can easily dismiss that and say, oh, well, there was something going wrong there. But actually, 2% is a lot of people, because often there were tens of thousands who would go forward at his appeal. He preached in nearly 200 countries. In 1990, on his 72nd birthday, he was preaching in Hong Kong, and that sermon was broadcast by satellite to over 100 million viewers in Asia. He was the first evangelist to hold public religious gatherings behind the Iron Curtain, as well as the first one to hold such meetings in North Korea and in China. In 1952, on Christmas Day and the period around Christmas, he spent it on the Korean War front. And, uh, of course, that was well covered in the American press. He personally associated himself with every American president from Eisenhower onwards, closely advising Lyndon B. Johnson, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, calling a number of them my best friend out of my immediate, except for my immediate term. So he's used the same phrase about several of them. Whenever he came to London, he would go and dine with the Queen. Um, and, of course, famously, Bible in hand, he appeared at the side of George Bush as the USA launched the 1991 war on Iraq. George Bush Jr. credits him with leading him out of alcohol abuse and into a relationship with G Jesus Christ. And interesting, Donald Trump attended his funeral, as did Michael Ops, who was here this morning. So, uh, um, but Donald Trump was there as well. His work, his example, inspired thousands of young men and women, um, but inspired them into full-time Christian ministry and um, uh, missionaries. Uh, all over the world, go back to my conversion was at a Billy Graham meeting. I've already mentioned Decision Magazine. It was the world's most widely distributed religious periodical. His first book, Peace with God, published in 1953, was translated into over 50 languages. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association had a film company called Worldwide Films, and I think they released some of the best evangelistic films that have ever been produced. At the peak of his career, he was receiving about 100,000 letters a week from all over the world. And he had a great team that answered them, of course. He had a team that stuck with him. I, I think it's one of the very uh, remarkable and unique features of Billy Graham. He had a team that stuck with him for over 50 years. George Beverly Shea. Uh, my wife laughs at me and always says I was born in the wrong era because often when I'm working I like to put on um, YouTube I, uh, music and I often have George Beverly Shea singing in the background oh of course and Paul Jones uh, of course. and, um, and <laughs> I often have him singing in the background I, I love his voice etc and he sang to more people than anybody else in history more than Frank Sinatra and just over the number that Manfred Mann could record um, <laughs> He, um, 
He assembled, back to Billy Graham now, he assembled 2,400 Protestant leaders from 150 countries from the, for the Lausanne Conference in 1974. Then in 1983 and 1986, he had the International Congress for Itinerant Evangelists in Amsterdam. At the first one, there were 4,000 of us. At the second one, 10,000 people gathered. He appeared in uh, the Gallup Poll's 10 Most Admired Men and um, he did so 10 years in succession. He was listed by Life magazine as one of the most important Americans of the 20th century. And yet, Bob Jones, the founder of the college that Billy Graham first attended, said that he did more damage to the cause of Christianity than any other man. So it needs some examination. In fact, one of the men who greatly influenced me when I was newly converted, and I in many ways still admire, said to me, uh, on the great accounting day, it will be seen that Billy Graham did more harm than good. So what are they thinking about? What is it that's causing this concern? And really, I just feel as though this is a cat looking at the queen. Well, if a cat may look at the queen... Uh, let me say, I don't agree with those last two statements, but I want to try and analyse why they were said and why there were people who felt like that. Let's examine these things. And I, I've just got five categories. For each of them, I want to start with a Bible verse, which for me has been the foundation for examining these five areas. The first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, which I suppose in many ways I've made as my motto verse. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I want to examine his preaching. He made a very definite and deliberate decision to believe and preach the Bible. It's quite important. It was a big moment in his life when he went alone and with his scripture and with the Lord. He said, whatever people are saying, I believe it and I am going to preach it. And at that moment, he said that in, in doing so, in accepting the authority of the scripture, infallibility of scripture and preaching only that, he said, I have never felt such power in my life. There was that moment when he was entertaining doubts about the authority of the Bible, but when he dismissed those and submitted himself to its authority, he said, it gave power and authority to my preaching that has never left me. The gospel in my hands became a hammer and a flame. I read a book that was one of the biographies I've written. It was written before... Um, Billy Graham came to Britain in 1954 and he was fairly unknown still in the UK and it was really trying to commend um, the British Christians uh, Billy Graham to the British Christians interestingly it said in that book and it's, it's a little bit naive but it's, it's interesting that in every single sermon he quotes 25 Bible verses and as he's quoting them he's counting them so he made sure he never had less than 25 now I think that probably changed later on but nevertheless he's famous isn't he for saying the Bible says the Bible says and you saw how I moved my hand there he practiced his gestures before, this is when he was a young preacher before he ever used them and he practiced his sermons and of course famously he used to go to the, the trees in the woods and he'd preach to the trees he did it in reality I often feel I'm doing it all the time but metaphorically but there we are and uh, so these tree stumps were listening to well they were there anyway um, Throughout his, his ministry, and quite unashamedly, he didn't hide this, he used a variety of assistants to help with or even prepare his sermons. 
So when he was in Haringey for almost three months, he ran out of sermons and he had a group of people um, preparing his sermons for him to preach. He didn't mind ghostwriters to help him, but he wanted to faithfully preach the gospel. Dot and I had the privilege some years ago now of going to New York and we went to Calvary Chapel, which used to be Stephen Alford's chapel, and we just went for an evening service. And uh, the, the minister of the church was leading the service and then he introduced the preacher. This is what he said. Our preacher tonight is so-and-so and so-and-so. He wrote the autobiography of Billy Graham just as I am. And I thought, oh, he said something wrong there. So, of course, being a blunt Yorkshireman, I always have to say it as it is, don't I? So I'm at the door shaking hands. And I said to the minister, I said, sorry, you, you said he wrote the autobiography of Billy Graham. I don't, don't think you quite meant. No, 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 he did. I said, what? He wrote the autobiography. Yes, he wrote it. Well, I felt, I felt a bit cheated, to be honest. I'd read just as I am, and it's, it's incredibly dull. So it wasn't a great commendation to say that he wrote it. But, uh, but mm, okay, I... I, I, you know, if it was Billy Graham with so-and-so, I wouldn't have minded too much. But anyway, I actually think just as I am, that particular book is the weakest of all of them. But I go back to the, 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 the theme of the preaching. Famously, he said, the Bible says, the Bible says, and he quoted scripture. And even in his later days, when we got new versions, new translations, he was still quoting the authorized version. He said, the preacher is only the messenger, not the author of the message. He is not accountable for that message. He is simply called on to proclaim it. It is the book speaking, not he. It is God speaking, not the speaker. He said he was loose to preach with a voice of commanding authority. And I dissolved every if and every I suppose and every maybe into the Bible says, the Bible says. And it is my belief, having heard numerous of his sermons, and I'd love you to Google in Billy Graham preaching, just listen to him. They are remarkable sermons. I believe he faithfully preached the gospel. Um, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is commissioning his, his disciples to go to the, your neighbors, Jerusalem, he said, and all nations and preach. And he said four things. He said, tell them about my suffering, about the resurrection, about repentance and forgiveness of sins. And I believe in explaining the gospel to, to non-Christians. In all my tracts and all my writing, I would always seek to cover those things. That Jesus has died, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. He's risen from the dead. They need to repent and receive forgiveness. And I do believe Billy Graham very, very faithfully preached that. Um, I heard him tell on one occasion when he was quite young and he'd been preaching in Texas. And there was very little response and he was he was. So upset, he was driving back to the hotel where he was staying and he turned to the guy and, and said, what, 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 what happened tonight? There was so little response. And the man faithfully said to Billy Graham, Billy, you did not preach the cross tonight. And he said, I determined then I would always preach the cross. He didn't talk about the blood. Interesting you were on that theme this morning. He didn't talk about the, the blood in the way that some of the sort of fundamentalist preachers would do so. And I'm not criticizing them. Nor him, but he did faithfully preach um, that Jesus Christ was the substitute and he bore the wrath of God on himself. Let me quote from one of his sermons. Christ died for your sins. They hung him on a cross and his blood was flowing and they taunted him. Come down, come down. You saved others, save yourself. 
And he said, no, I love them. I'm dying for people in 1952 in Washington, D.C. I'm dying for these people in generations yet unborn. I'm going to bear their penalty and their punishment and take it on myself. And of course he called people to decision. He said he was an evangelist and not an educator. And um, yeah, factually sometimes he could be very, very vague. Uh, he, he, I heard him tell um, the story of um, the guy who had been in prison and he was wondering whether if he went back home um, he would be welcomed. And so he wrote and said uh, to his family, if you, if you want me back home, you just, just, uh, just tie a yellow ribbon in the tree. And, uh, well, when he came back home and Billy Graham told it very powerfully, all oh, the trees were lined with yellow ribbons and, and he knew it was well. Great story. But it's not factual at all. It's just taken from a song. Tie a yellow ribbon in the old oak tree. But <laughs> Did Manfred Mann sing that one? I've forgotten. Was that, was that one of your better ones? No, no, okay. And, uh, but, but, but he would tell it as if it was, you know, Ed said, and there were lots of these sort of... Gaffs, but nevertheless, in his preaching, um, there was great power. I don't think he always got things right on other issues. So again, I've seen, uh, whether it was YouTube or somewhere, I've seen a video recording anyway, when he was on television in America being interviewed about abortion. And uh, Francis Schaeffer was with him. And the interviewer asked Billy Graham, you know, what's your view on abortion? And he said, well, I'm against abortion. Except in some exceptional cases, such as, and he mentioned one or two, and then he said, and rape. Francis Schaeffer turned and said, if they had abortion for rape, you would not have had Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters, that jazz singer whose tract I mentioned over there, her mother was raped at the age of 12, and Ethel Waters was born when her mother was just 13. And, and I think he was wrong. He, he, you know, he, I agree with Francis Schaeffer. I don't agree with, with uh, Billy Graham on that particular one. And there were these things, and if you read the books, you'll find lots of them. But I believe when he met world leaders, and he did so more than any other person, I think, I, I feel very confident that he would have faithfully explained the gospel to them. I feel very confident about that. And I don't know anybody else in world history who's had such unique opportunities that wherever he went in the world, royalty, emperors, presidents, prime ministers wanted to meet with him. So in the Haringey Crusade, he met with Winston Churchill. Churchill said, young man, do you see any hope for the world? And uh, Billy Graham said, I do. And he spoke to him about Jesus and about his first coming and the second coming. Apparently Churchill said, well, if there is any hope for the world, you young man have it. And I'm sure when he met with Her Majesty the Queen and others, he would have spoken faithfully. So with regard to preaching, yeah, I believe he faithfully preached the gospel. Secondly, his strategy. Let me give a Bible verse again to be my sort of foundation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17. When I was planning this, did I do it lightly? All things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That's what Paul is asking. Billy Graham worked hard. In his first year of being a full-time evangelist, he travelled over 200,000 miles. Now, of course, many of those were by plane, but nevertheless, he spoke in 47 different US states. Eventually, of course, he had a phalanx of extraordinary uh, and unfailing 
assistants who were with him and helped him immensely. Some of them are well known. Cliff Barrows, who was an evangelist in his own right, but gave himself to to help Billy Graham for the rest of his days. And uh, Beth Shea, I've mentioned already, two brothers, who in some ways were a little bit weak, but they were boyfriends, uh, you know, friends when Billy Graham was a boy, Grady and Ted Wilson. And I have to say, he had a Yorkshire pianist uh, by the name of John Innes, who was the pianist at Sunbridge Road Mission, and Billy Graham spotted him and got him, and he became his, his full-time pianist. When Cliff left being an evangelist in his own right to work with Billy Graham, he said, God has given us peace in our hearts. As long as you want us to, from now on till the Lord returns, or whenever, I'll be content to be your song leader, carry your bag, go anywhere, do anything you want me to do. Which was an amazing commitment and loyalty, uh, a bit like Ruth towards Naomi. He would have advanced men who would go into a city at least two years before a crusade. And... Um, then you'd have a team working and they would target various groups, young people, college students, military personnel. And on some occasions it was a bit of an issue in the early days for him, but he'd go for uh, uh, the black population as well. Music was at the heart of his rallies. He'd have these vast choirs, of course. He'd have Bev Shea and um, uh, one or two other singers and, uh, and then some celebrities. But not to the extent, say, that Frank, Franklin Graham had when he was in Blackpool recently, which was basically two hours with Franklin Graham squeezed in the middle with 20 minutes. No, the music was a build-up, a sort of crescendo was coming with Billy Graham. In fact, I heard Billy Graham say, I could not preach unless George Beverly Shea sang just before I was due to preach. And if that sounds a little bit odd, you go to, I think it's 2 Kings 2, it might be 3, where Elisha is asked to prophesy and it seems as though he didn't know what to say. So he asked for music to be played and then he speaks. And I think there was a little bit of, of Jet Bevshe sort of moving, preparing uh, Billy Graham's heart ready to preach, as well as being used to quieten the, the audience, the crowd, the congregation, whatever you want to call it. But he had all types of music. He had trios and choirs and instrumental combinations. Sometimes in the early days, the rallies were quite spectacle. So to have a choir of two or three thousand is quite something. On one occasion, he had five grand pianos on stage. And yet Billy Graham was tone deaf. But nevertheless, he understood the value and the power of music. Um, he did scale things down a little bit from his early Youth for Christ days when he was often backed by um, girl trios, magicians, and even a horse named MacArthur who would kneel at the cross and tap its hoof 12 times, one for each of the 12 apostles. Uh, one of his performances included a sonata of 100 pianos. But he did, as I say, tone things down. But he said this, We used every modern means to catch the attention of the unconverted, and then we would punch them right between the eyes with the gospel. Now, his crusades were incredibly well prepared. This is Haringey. This was one of the earlier ones. 10,000 press announcements. 30,000 posters and bus advertisements. 18,000 people enlisted to pray. And it was then that he met with Sir Winston Churchill and the Queen. He met with journalists. One famous encounter with um, William Connor, whose um, strap name was Cassandra in the 
Daily Mirror and uh, Cassandra really opposed and being cynical about Billy Graham but they met and uh, he, yeah, he was willing to meet with his most Serbic critic they met in a pub called the Baptist Head which was interesting but then Cassandra wrote the next day I never thought that simplicity could cudgel us sinners so hard we live and learn the bloke means every word he says um, he said to the editor of the Washington Post, all we want from you is the first headline every day for eight days. So, he, you know, he wanted that sort of coverage. And he expected conversions. David Shepard, the Welsh evangelist, who had a big impact on me in my early days. I wish he was still around. I loved David Shepard. Um, he was translating for him. I think this was 1946, before he was known, but he was in, in South Wales preaching. And, and David Shepard was translating into Welsh for him. And on one occasion, they were together after a, a service, and nobody had professed conversion. And um, um, Billy Graham turned to David Shepard and said, there's something wrong. I always get a crowd of conversions with this sermon. There's something wrong at the moment. What is it? And, uh, you know, he expected people to be converted, which is, is wonderful. He sought to include everybody. Now, this is where weakness comes in. Including his friend, Chuck Templeton. Chuck had been with him in the early days as an evangelist and in many ways was more humanly gifted than Billy Graham. Billy would say that, more intelligent, uh, an academic, but a very, very good orator. But he turned against Christian things, probably through immorality, but he became an atheist. And he was the one who really made Billy Graham doubt uh, the Bible until that moment where he went and prayed and submitted himself to its authority. But... Um, one of the biographies I've, I've, I, I read said that on one occasion he was preaching and he spotted Chuck Templeton in the crowd and he had no liberty. He just, he just struggled all the way through. He was, he was sort of intimidated by him. But on another occasion he got Chuck Templeton on the platform to lead in prayer. Uh, and yet Chuck said to him, Look, I'm an atheist, I don't believe it. Never mind, he said, just, just lead in prayer. And there was this, it was a sort of big-heartedness, but it was a naivety, this desire to include anybody and he would have clergy on the platform and in so, so doing not only trying to include them but identify with them who denied the deity the trinity the virgin birth the resurrection the inerrancy of scripture heaven and hell uh, of the 140 people uh, who were on the general crusade committee in new york 140 of them 120 were modernists liberals infidels or something other than just Bible believing Christians he would call arch liberal clergymen godly men he said that the one badge of Christian discipleship is not orthodoxy but love and this had implications so that when Roman Catholics wait for it or Jews responded to his appeal he would send the card, the deed to the council, you know, the card of the information back to the Roman Catholic priests or the rabbis. And it was this just desire to please, to, as it were, welcome everybody, attract everybody. But, well, this is what he said. We'll send them to their own churches, Roman Catholic, Protestants or Jewish. The rest is up to God. They were well aware as a team of Sinclair Lewis's 1927 novel, Elmer Gantry, which told of an unscrupulous evangelist who went really 
very much astray. It was, a, it was fictional, but nevertheless it was a well-known film in the States. And they knew too many evangelists had been spoiled by money. And one has to say, Billy Sunday was one of those. So much money came his way. <laughs> Dream on evangelists. So much money came his way that it ruined him. And he was aware of this. So in November 1948, to prepare their own defences... They were staying in a place called Medista in California and Grady Wilson and T.W. Wilson, Cliff Barrows, Bev Shea and he prayed together and drew up what they then called the Medisto Manifesto, which became the sort of centrepiece of the way that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association would operate. These are some of the things that they included. I think we can learn from this. They would incorporate as a non-profit organisation with trustees who were not family members. They would set for themselves salaries and not just receive love offerings, which could be huge, you see, for some of the American evangelists of those days. They would respond to invitations only if the invitation came from local religious um, communities. And they would not travel or meet alone with or dine alone with another woman other than their wives, ever. They were... They were told that, here's the quotation, nobody takes care of old evangelists, which is an interesting one, because I hit 21 a little while ago now, so it's quite interesting. So they did make sure they were well looked after. They certainly got some very, very wealthy men around them who were supporting them. For example, when they were still quite young, they were all staying in the Dorchester Hotel, I've never, never been to the Dorchester, have you? Now, I have to say, I don't know where Dot is, but Dot and I have a little, well, a fun thing when we're on holiday sometimes. We, we look out for a really expensive hotel. For example, we'd gone to the south of France, we had a fortnight down there, which we loved, and we went one day to Monte Carlo, and there was this hotel with all the Rolls Royces outside. So, so we said, come on, let's go to the Louvre. <laughs> so we walked in as if we owned the hotel, and we just go to the Louvre, and we walk out, we think, ooh, we've been there. <laughs> <laughs> it's great fun and um, <laughs> we've done that with a number of hotels ask me later and, uh, but anyway, they were staying in the Dorchester when their funds ran out so what did they do? Well, what do you do? They phoned their wealthy friend R.G. Letourneau in the USA who just wrote a cheque and bailed them out. Whether that was good for them, I don't know. We'll leave that. Um, he lived in a lovely home. I'm not criticising that at all. And it had to be secluded and protected from intruders because they had so many autographs, seekers, etc., people wanting to come along. But interestingly, he did want contact with people. Gypsy Smith the evangelist, who again was greatly used, he, he didn't want any contact with people. He'd preach and then he'd go. And he didn't want to sign autographs, etc. Billy Graham wasn't like that. He would sign autographs. I suppose if he was living today, he'd take selfies. The trouble was, he was treated a bit like a pop star. And so, sometimes when he was going out, he'd put a false beard on, dark glasses and a hat, so that he wouldn't be recognised. But big bucks were involved. So, for example, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association subsidised the 1986 Amsterdam Evangelist Conference by $21 million. By the late, late 1980s, uh, they were turning over about $70 million a year for their organisation, though, you know, 100,000 letters to be replied to is a lot of work, etc. 
But one has to say there has never been any accusation of sexual immorality for any of the senior team. He kept himself for his wife both before and after marriage. Billy Graham said, I am not attracted to other women. I do not think about them. Listen to this. He turned down the suggestions and requests that he should run for American, to be American president. He twice turned down the opportunity to star in two Hollywood films. But he was criticised. Calvinists criticised him for making public appeals for people to get up out of their seats. But he said, and I feel correctly, that everyone whom Jesus called, he called publicly. So I have no problem with the idea of getting up and coming out of, out of your seat to show that you're trusting the Lord. I just think for us, you know, we're all sort of small-time evangelists, aren't we? It, it can almost become another hurdle. And so it's perhaps not the best thing for us. But for him, when you've got 35 people normally listening to you and perhaps a few hundred, maybe a few thousand going to respond, how else do you meet these people? Um, yeah, so that's his strategy. Thirdly, his politics. Now, I want to quote scripture again. And for me, perhaps I, you know, maybe when I was younger, I had some brethren influences on me. And maybe so I've come to this particular verse, maybe because of a background and you may not feel this is the appropriate one. But nevertheless, Paul wrote to Timothy, he who does, he who was does not entangle himself with the affairs of this world that he might please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. It's this business of entangling ourselves. Of course, we, you know, we, we, we want to influence and impact uh, our nation, but it's the entangling, and we're going to see this in a moment. To understand Billy Graham, we have to, I think we have to see that he was a man with an extravagant, generous heart. He needed friends. He wanted influence. He was American by birth and by culture, and despite the notion of a separation of church and state in the United States, Christians nevertheless traditionally in the States have been very committed to political involvement and perhaps you know the evangelicals of the States are too aligned with the Republican Party but that's a different issue in his messages and I heard these in the 1960s and they were certainly even more true in the 1950s there were many many references to the threat of communism he would warn about its dangers at Haringey he predicted that England would turn to Marxism within five years. I'm not sure how old Jeremy Corbyn was at that stage, but anyway, it's, um, in, in 1966 in Earl's Court, I, I heard him do this. He, he described the family goat which their family possessed. And um, he said it was smelly, unpredictable and messy. We call it Khrushchev. Well, you see, so everybody laughed, but was that the right thing to say and to do? He railed against communism, and I quote, as a fanatical religion supernaturally empowered by the devil to counteract Christianity, and he predicted, quote, the immediate deification of Joseph Stalin um, with his birthday celebrated as we do Christ's in the, in, in the Soviet Union. Quote again, the devil is their God, Marx their prophet, Lenin their saint. Now these were the days of uh, Joseph McCarthy and Billy Graham praised the investigations that were underway to root out communism. He called 
McCarthy, quote, one of the most inspiring men I have ever met. He is deeply religious. Now, this got the attention of a man called Henry Luce, who was the son of Christian missionaries, but he was the wealthy publisher of Time magazine and Life magazine. Billy Graham felt that they could help in the spread of the gospel, and um, Luce felt that Billy Graham could be used to undermine communism. And so Billy Graham was willing to go along with that. He flew to Paris to encourage General Eisenhower to run for president. Later, he was in discussion as to how to defeat John F. Kennedy. And he wrote an article for Henry Luce heaping praise on Nixon. But when the Democrats heard it was going to be published, uh, they were livid, really. And Kennedy's father... Um, as well as John F. Kennedy himself, who both of them knew Luce. They contacted him and insisted on fair play, but the article actually was pulled and never published. Billy Graham asked Eisenhower to proclaim a day of prayer before the election. Now, Eisenhower refused, but nevertheless, there was that sort of influence. Billy Graham, he publicly derided those protesting against the Vietnam War. He even said that his son Franklin, who was nearing the age of the draft, would be willing to give his life for the country. Now, you see, the trouble is in saying these things, when Billy Graham came to Earl's Court and he made his appeal, people, scores of them, came forward with big placards protesting about his view of the Vietnam War. And you sort of think, you know, we, we, Billy Graham, were you being wise in saying what you... It, it, it caused aggro and difficulties that probably you shouldn't have been entangling yourself in. He became a close friend of Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the first president of the USA to attend a Billy Graham meeting. Now, this was far removed from his initial contact with the president. And this is quite interesting. I think it's worth us all learning from this. On July the 14th, 1950, Billy Graham and his team met with President Harry Truman. If I can quote his own words, we were dressed like a barbershop quartet. And they met with the president and talked. And then afterwards, whilst on the White House lawn with Harry Truman, the four of the team, Cliff Barrows, etc., knelt with Billy Graham's arm round the president and they prayed. And apparently in the background, Cliff Barrows was saying, do it, Lord, do it, and amen. And Harry Truman, who wasn't a Christian at all, was just embarrassed and humiliated. Then they went and reported to the press all that had been said between them. Truman never forgave Billy Graham for that. And uh, years later, when Billy Graham begged Truman to come to one of his crusades, he never did. I, I want to say a big lesson was learned, but I can only say sort of learned, because I don't think it was entirely learned. He regularly played golf with the president. Now, actually, to be fair to him, he did stop playing because he said, I realized I was not redeeming the time to spend this time on, on the, the golf courses. He became very close to President Nixon. And he even defended and, and enhanced Nixon's anti-Semitic remarks when he made them. He heard Nixon speak at one of his meetings in, um, in Tennessee and um, he, he was aligned to him and then he got Nixon to come along and sit on the platform with him. So when Watergate and the tapes were all revealed, 
Billy Graham was devastating. In case you don't know, there was blasphemy, there was swearing, there were crudities, there was deception, there was a lack of integrity. And it all came out on these tapes from Nixon, who came from a Quaker background, and Billy Graham had said what a wonderful believer he was, etc. Now, Billy Graham spoke at Nixon's funeral, but Watergate, I think all would say, sapped Billy Graham's authority and undermined his reputation. He got too close to one political leader. Later, he said that it was a big mistake to, and I quote, identify the gospel with any political program or culture. I confess tonight that this has been one of my own dangers in my ministry. When I go to preach the gospel, I go as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, not America. In 1982, overcoming numerous hurdles, he went to Moscow to speak at a conference in favour of nuclear disarmament. Now, you've got to remember that Stalin had murdered tens of thousands of believers, born-again believers. Khrushchev had closed thousands of churches. And Brezhnev, all you know, the premiers of, of the USSR, Brezhnev demanded that the Soviet people denied the existence of God. But Billy Graham went there and he felt he was making history. And he called for what he, he, he termed Salt 10. A leapfrogging over the incremental gains that might be won in a series of arms limitation talks used for mass destruction. So he said, let's leave all those, let's just go for nuclear disarmament. Of course, when people are starving, it is immoral to spend billions on the genocide of the human race. So you, you can understand why he's saying what he's saying. But what was so disappointing was that... Um, he made no appeal for the release of imprisoned Christians. And in a press conference, he expressed his gratitude to the leadership of the country, quote, which gives full and genuine freedom to all religious denominations. He even said that he'd been given caviar to eat in the USSR, which never happens when I'm in the US. But there were Christians starving. And you sort of think, oh, why did you do that? Uh, incidentally, I went to the um, um, conference for itinerant evangelists in 1984, as I mentioned, and you know he gave his first talk to an appeal for nuclear disarmament. And I remember sitting there and thinking, what's this to do with us evangelists? You know, one guy had sold his 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 goats to get the money to get the flight over there. What influence would he have over nuclear disarmament? But it was a sort of political thing. And uh, it was trying to gain influence in the establishment, in the corridors of power, but I never felt it was right. Um, now, Moscow's ambivalence to him coming was really in a desire to... to um, uh, you know, to sort of say, look, we're okay, you can trust us as a, as a nation. And his ambivalence to the criticism was all in a desire to open up further the Iron Curtain countries, which he did. But he went to Hungary and said, there is religious liberty in Hungary. Dave Donigani and I went together to um, Romania in the 1980s when Ceausescu was was the president there, and we were told by our translator, who was a very, very good translator, Radhika Kokar, we were told by her that when Billy Graham was preaching in Bucharest, the translator was not translating what Billy Graham was saying. It was a totally different message, uh, which was interesting. 
Now, I'm going to quote this twice. So, listen, I think this is, this, this is really the nub of what I'm trying to get across. It, it comes from a Baptist minister who said of Billy Graham that he is a popular and pleasant fellow who doesn't like offending his host, whether in Washington or Moscow. But it's never easy to sup with power and get up from the table spotless. This is why the prophets of old preferred the wilderness. When they did come forth, it was not to speak softly with kings and governors, but to call them to judgment. And I'm not going to go into this in detail because you'd have to read the long history of it, but uh, it was very similar to Billy Graham's attitude to racial issues, where again, certainly in the early days, he showed a very strong desire not to offend in any way. Later on, things changed. Interesting, Billy Graham never backed Jerry Falwell or the moral majority or Pat Robinson in his bid for presidency. He had learned some lessons, but I will leave them there. Fourthly, um, yeah, I realise I'm running out of time, but I want to cover it if I can. Jude, verse 3. I found it necessary to write to you, says Jude, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. From the earliest days, Billy Graham was happy to work with liberals and Roman Catholics, so that in the New York crusade, he was sponsored by the Protestant Church Council of New York, which was very, very broad. Martin Luther King, a serial adulterer, led in prayer one night. Mrs. Norman Vincent Peale headed up the prayer groups for the crusade, a liberal woman. Billy Graham said of Nor her husband, Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, of course, he's done more for the kingdom of God than anyone knows. In fact, their church received the largest number of decision cards of any church in New York. And regularly he sent these decision follow-up cards to Roman Catholic churches. In 1978, so he's still, you know, he's what, um, 50 years of age, he said, I found that my beliefs are essentially the same as those of Orthodox Roman Catholics. We only differ on some small matters of later church tradition. I would argue there's a difference on the very heart of the gospel. On the Hour of Decision program, I heard him describe Pope John Paul as the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. He called him a bridge builder, an evangelist, the greatest moral and spiritual leader of this century, but he was preaching a different gospel completely. At the Amsterdam conference which I attended, the opening address was given by an arch-liberal professor of the Free University of Amsterdam. And this is what caused Bob Jones to say what he did. In fact, when he died, his family wrote to Billy Graham, um, sorry, Billy Graham wrote to his family and... Um, they said, please do not come to the funeral. I've got that wrong, sorry. Um, sorry, I've got that the wrong way around. When, when Bob Jones died, they wrote to Billy Graham, sorry, I got that wrong, and said, please do not come to the funeral. Jack Wurtson, the founder of Word of Life, huge evangelistic ministry in the States, who had worked very closely with Billy Graham, distanced himself from him, saying, quote, I never questioned Billy's motives, but I sometimes think that it's the end which justifies the means with him. Billy Graham found it difficult to repudiate people who appeared to be sincere but who professed to believe um, different things. And he treated them, yes, with courtesy and kindness, but he wouldn't ever say, I disagree. He didn't like to do that. He saw the liberals 
as as people he could work with and seek to reach and uh, at least try and get some converts from them. Uh, he felt as though as long as he was trying to tell them something and he could preach to them, it, it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't harm if he was accepting them. An editorial in the Charlotte Observer, he lived in, in Charlotte in South Carolina or North Carolina, noted that his fellow Southern Baptists felt that, quote, he's too close to the powerful and too fond of the things of the world. And they likened him to the prophets of old who told the kings of Israel what they wanted to hear. Last point, to do with the family. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. There is no doubt at all that uh, Billy Graham and Ruth had a very, very good marriage. They loved each other. They loved being together. They said, quote, every time we get together, it's like another honeymoon. In old age, apparently, they would just sit and look at one another. He said, quote, it's wonderful now just to lie there in bed, the two of us, and hold each other and talk. The children all say they never heard a cross word between them. And if that sounds odd, that's true of my parents as well. I never heard them disagree in front of me or argue or anything in front of me. They may have done it privately, I have no idea, but they never did. And that was Billy Graham's children saying the same. However, there was an inevitable price to pay for such separation. And uh, they sacrificed privacy and time together. And of course, eventually, I know this, the glamour of travel, now I just travel up and down the M1 and the M62, but the glamour of travel went. And they longed for the monotony of home. Ruth commented on their separations, that I'd rather have a little of Billy than a lot of any other man. But nevertheless, it was at times just a little of Billy. Listen to this, very pertinent for all of us here. On one occasion, the team met with Ma Sunday, that's Billy Graham's widow, sorry, Billy Sunday's widow, over a meal in Atlanta. Listen to what she said to them. Boys, whatever you do, don't neglect your family. I did. I travelled with Pa, Billy Sunday, all over the country, and I sacrificed my children. I saw all four of them go straight to hell. Billy Graham's daughter Anne often said that the five children were raised by a single parent. Gigi uh, remembers that when she was 12 or 13, she and her father had an argument. And when she, you know, lost her rag a little bit, she asked her father, what kind of a father was he anyway when he was spending so much time away from them? I quote from her, tears filled his eyes. It was the first I began to realise as a young adult just how much he was giving up by being gone. Now, all five of the children of the Lords, but there have been issues. The three have been divorced. Franklin and Ned caused great heartache, but they are all the Lords and we thank God for that. Time's gone. Let me conclude with one or two things. I genuinely believe I have never heard a greater gospel preacher he was neither an educator nor an expositor, but he preached the word and he explained the gospel and he did so to millions. Even those who never heard him heard about him 
and often knew something of the gospel. You know, when everybody's been to Haringey and then they go on the tube and they're singing Blessed Assurance. Those who are hearing all this are getting something of the gospel, aren't they? And of course he was on television and interviews and all the, all the rest. The team stuck with him. They were loyal. And he could delegate. And they say when he delegated, he trusted them to do it. He wasn't always interfering, asking what are you doing, how are things are. He just trusted them to get on with it uh, and do it. He is a parable of American righteousness in many ways. No scandal ever attached to him. And his impact was great. He took opportunities and he was a man with a burden. The, the Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem painting. It's my favourite piece of art and I love art and I... You know, I, I collect pictures of a certain type of art. I just love art. But that one, to my mind, shows compassion, a desire for the lost, an awareness that people outside of Jesus are going to hell. And, and Billy Graham knew that. So he was speaking on one occasion at a presidential prayer breakfast. He wasn't feeling well, but nevertheless he went through his talk. John F. Kennedy, seated next to him, said... Uh, I'd like to chat with you. And Billy Graham said, I'm really sorry, I'm just not feeling well at all. Can, can we meet later? He never saw JFK again on November 22nd, 1963. I think, is that the date of your birth? It's, uh, it isn't. It's near anyway, I think. But uh, <laughs> I was trying to work something out from a sermon you said, that's right. Anyway, on the November 22nd, 1963, of course, he, he was killed by an assassin's bullet. Do you know, this really troubled Billy Graham. I could have shared the gospel with President Kennedy and I just wasn't well. But we all have feet of clay and we need each other. I believe conferences like this are important. Regularly meeting together is important. Accountability is important. In the Association of Evangelists, we say we all have to have a group of people to whom we're accountable. Who I never like those meetings. <laughs> I always wrap my knuckles. They're always over the same issue. We'll leave that for the minute. But we need it. We need it. After Haringey, where there was immense blessing, he was asked by the churches of the country, please continue through the UK and keep preaching. Ah, this fatal flaw in his thinking. He asked the liberal Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, what he should do. And the Archbishop said, don't. And so he didn't. Fifty years after Haringey in 2004, in the Decision magazine, I think it was, Billy Graham said, it was the biggest mistake of my ministry because it was the one time that the UK was open to the gospel. Politics and power wowed him. There was a humility, but it wowed him. Quote, it's never easy to sup with power and get up from the table spotless. That's why the prophets of old preferred the wilderness. It was not to speak softly with kings and governors, but to call them to judgment. There certainly is nobody else like Billy Graham around at the moment. I am not one of those who believes that the day of mass evangelism is over. Who knows, God may well raise another Billy Graham but I just pray, while most of us, you know, it's very small and unsung stuff, isn't it? Uh, all of us probably. But let's learn from him. Let's keep faithful to the gospel. Let's guard ourselves from temptations. We've thought a lot about that 
uh, these few days. But let's remember in the end, the Lord Jesus and him alone is our ultimate, unfailing, unmarred example. And it's him we want to make us, you know, our total role model. Well, there we are. That's my assessment of Billy Graham. I don't know whether there's time for questions or anything. I, well, who's leading? I've forgotten. It's five o'clock. That means I can run and escape. Uh, that book is worth reading. And don't forget, they've got some of the John Lennox one, which ties in so well with what Andrew was saying. Have no fear. I'd love you to go and all get that. You could read that, um, you know, when you stop for a coffee on the supermarket on the way home. Yeah, thanks, Martin.